Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary. Today on The Charlie Kirk Show, I have an incredible conversation with the amazing, the incredible Larry Elder, one of the leading black voices in America. He is the sage of South Central L.A. He has an upcoming movie called UncleTom.com. If you are believing the white privilege nonsense narrative, this is the podcast for you. Listen, learn, share. Listen, learn, share, repeat. You guys are going to love it. Get your notes ready because Larry Elder brings the heat. Buckle up. Here we go. Charlie, what you've done is incredible here. Maybe Charlie Kirk is on the college campus. I want you to know we are lucky to have Charlie Kirk. Charlie Kirk's running the White House, folks. I want to thank Charlie. He's an incredible guy. His spirit, his love of this country. He's done an amazing job building one of the most powerful youth organizations ever created, Turning Point USA. We will not embrace the ideas that have destroyed countries, destroyed lives, and we are going to fight for freedom on campuses across the country. That's why we are here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Charlie Kirk Show. I am so honored to have probably one of the most, if not the most, articulate black conservative voice in the entire country, someone who I have learned more about the issues of police brutality and the myths surrounding it and just some of the talking points of the left that have been debunked, Larry Elder. Larry Elder, I first became aware of Larry Elder when he went on Dave Rubin on The Rubin Report and he basically red-pilled Dave Rubin in real time. Dave Rubin had never heard of some of the, let's just say, other, the other side of talking points when it came to some of the issues. And Larry, you just spit facts to him for about 45 minutes. And he was just kind of like, yeah, I've never heard that. Larry, welcome to The Charlie Kirk Show. Charlie, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I've got a documentary coming out on the 19th called Uncle Tom, and it's precisely because of people like Dave Rubin that I made this documentary. People make all these assertions uh, without any fact uh, to behind it, uh, and um, the documentary is all about, Charlie, people like Candace Owens, I know who you know very well, uh, and Herman Cain, and uh, uh, Alan West, and what happens when you simply say, you know what, maybe not everything can be traced to slavery and Jim Crow. Maybe the number one problem in America is not racism. Maybe the number one problem in America for the black community in particular is the absence of fathers. Anybody that says that is considered to be a sellout and Uncle Tom, we can't even have an intelligent discussion about whether or not these things are going to advance the best interests of the country. So, Larry, I'm so glad you, you, you said that. So let's dive right into it. I am getting hundreds of messages and emails. I just did a podcast on why white privilege is a racist myth. The whole idea of collective guilt and indicting an entire group on immutable characteristics, I think, is so reprehensible and wrong. But Larry, why don't you start with, is America systemically racist? Uh, the answer is, is no. I mean, the, the fact that Barack Obama got elected and reelected in the 1950s, 
You ask uh, the average white person whether he or she would vote for a black president, irrespective of how qualified uh, they thought the president might be. And the answer was no. The overwhelming majority of white Americans said no. So if racism is, quote, in our DNA, which is what Obama said, there's no way Obama could have gotten elected by definition. And right now, of course, we're talking about the George Floyd killing. Uh, it turns out that the numbers of unarmed blacks who were shot and killed by the police last year, nine. Number of unarmed whites shot and killed by the police last year, 19. I defy your audience to name an unarmed white person because the media couldn't give a rip if an unarmed white person. Furthermore, according to the CDC, the numbers of police shootings against blacks have declined by 75% over the last 45 years, while the rate of police shootings against whites have flatlined. So one could argue that white people ought to be complaining because when you look at the crime rate, the homicide rate anyway, for young black men, it's around eight times higher than the homicide rate for young white men. The, the number one cause of preventable death for young white men, Charlie, is accidents. The number one cause of, of death, whether preventable or not, for young black men is homicide, almost always at the hands of another black person, not at the hands of the cop. And finally, there were about 750 interracial black-white homicides last year. 500 whites were killed by blacks and 250 blacks were killed by whites. So blacks killed twice as many whites, even though blacks are just 13 percent of the population. Uh, and we're not even talking about what happened the other weekend and Memorial Day weekend in Chicago, where 10 people were, were shot and killed. 49 people were shot. Uh, Chicago year to year, Charlie, has more shootings and homicides than they did last year, even though for several months they've had a coronavirus stay at home order. So we're not talking about the real problems facing the black community. We're, we're, we're focusing on the rare, tragic to be sure, but rare occasion when uh, a, a white cop kills uh, an unarmed black person. It almost never happens, and to the extent that it does, uh, in Minneapolis, there is no reason to believe why we're not going to have a thorough investigation. You have a very sympathetic mayor. You have a police chief who is a Mexican-American and black. The state attorney general uh, in Minnesota uh, is a black man. And the congressperson from that area, Ilan Omar, is a person of color. There is zero reason to believe that whatever happened uh, is not going to be dealt with thoroughly. So why are we having eight consecutive days of writing? It's outrageous. And it's because of this false notion that the police are engaging in, in, uh, in routine systemic, institutional, structural racism against black people. There have been a number of studies, Charlie, recently, and it not only has it not confirmed this, it found the opposite. One study was done by a black Harvard economist named Rowling Fryer. Uh, he said that his results were the most surprising of his career. He just knew he was going to corroborate the idea that the police were using disproportionate deadly force against black people. Not only did he find out that was not true, he found out that that cops are more hesitant, more reluctant to pull the trigger against a black suspect than a white suspect, presumably because they fear being called a racist, fear being made a cause celeb and so forth. So it's not True. And the fact that it's not true would just be neither here nor there. A lot of liberals believe things that are not true. But this is getting people killed because it causes young black men to have heightened uh, security, insecurity when they're approaching a black cop. If they feel the black cop's going to hurt them, why not uh, have a confrontational attitude? And on the part of the cops, it causes them to pull back for fear they're going to be called racist. And as a result, crime goes up. And the very same people that the Black Lives Matter people claim they care about are the ones who are hurt the most. That, that, it's so well said. So I, I kind of divide this into two different buckets. You have the Black Lives Matter activists, and then you have the upper middle class, mostly white suburban individuals that have been protected by police officers their entire life. And actually, they are the mass majority of the social media activity and some of the arson and the protests. So let's dive into that, Larry. Should white people have some sort of guilt for being white? Is there white privilege? 
You know, I, I think of reparations as the extraction of money from people who are never slave owners to be given to people who are never slaves. The idea that you as a white person should be guilty about something you had nothing to do with uh, is, is absurd. But, but you're right. It is a lot of white uh, uh, lefties who are driving all of this. These people that have been educated in our colleges and universities have been uh, indoctrinated by our media and by Hollywood. And they, and they believe, I guess because of guilt, uh, that uh, everything can be traced to race and racism. And what happened uh, to George Floyd is, is a microcosm of how black people are treated every day. Back in 1997, Charlie, Time Magazine and CNN did a poll. They did a poll of black teens and white teens. And they asked them both, do you think that racism is a major problem in America? And not too surprisingly, both of them said yes. But then they asked the black teens follow-up questions. Is racism a big problem, a small problem, or no problem in your own daily life? And in 1997, 89% of black teens said that racism was a small problem or no problem in my own daily life. In fact, more black teens and white teens said yes to the following proposition. Failure to take advantage of racism is a bigger, failure to take advantage of opportunities is a bigger problem than racism. More black kids said yes to that than white kids did. That's 1997, 23 years ago, before Barack Obama gets elected, let alone re-elected, before we've had back-to-back -back black secretaries of state, back-to-back -back black attorneys general. The idea that anybody that works hard, gets an education, does not make bad moral mistakes, uh, and gets a job and keeps that job, can't escape poverty, uh, is simply untrue. And to tell people that otherwise uh, is, to be, uh, is to be counterproductive. I believe that some of these if, 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 if bad leadership were a crime, Charlie, these people would be on death row. The idea of telling black people that you're a victim as opposed to work hard, do two good hard hours of homework every night, graduate from high school, don't have a kid before you're 20, get married first, you won't be poor, that that formula doesn't apply to you because you're black, that is insulting. America is ready to get back to work. But to win in the new economy, you need every advantage to succeed. Smart companies run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you'll have the visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need all in one place. Whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite lets you manage every penny with precision. You'll have the ability to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to make it happen. NetSuite surveyed hundreds of business leaders and assembled a playbook of the top strategies they're using as America reopens for business. Receive your free guide, Seven Actions, Businesses you need to take right now. It's great for anybody, whether you're a business owner or not. Go right now to netsuite.com slash Kirk. Get our free guide, your free guide, netsuite.com slash Kirk. Free product tour right now, netsuite.com slash Kirk. That's netsuite.com slash Kirk. And what ends up happening then is white people also believe it, upper middle class suburban individuals from the community that I grew up in in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And then I start to see people push forth policies that overly pander. And I don't actually think long term it helps black America. I don't. Not only does it not help, Charlie, it makes things worse. Take affirmative action, which is one of the big things that are, that are done to level the playing field. It turns out the more you lower the standards for admission into college and university, the greater the, the uh, kid is going to likelihood of the kids are going to drop out. We got rid of race-based preferences here in California about 20 years ago, and it was true that there were fewer blacks admitted to the more selective campuses at Berkeley and UCLA, for example, but more got into uh, UC uh, Irvine or UC Riverside, and they graduated on time. So the percentage of blacks graduating on time actually went up, even though the percentage of uh, blacks at the more prestigious institution went down. 
So all you're doing by lowering standards is making things worse, making it more likely somebody's going to fail. And by the way, and when they fail, they are angry. They wonder why you admitted me if I wasn't going to succeed. And then they've left with a lot of debt. They haven't gone to a lesser college where they could be more competitive. They just left and they're angry, angry at the world. And they believe that the professors jacked them over. That's why I was flunked out. Why did you admit me if you didn't think I could do the work? Why did you flunk me? That's what a lot of people feel, all because of this notion that I'm going to lower the playing field in order to achieve some sort of racial diversity. They don't want ideological diversity. They want racial diversity. Everybody that is left wing, that's okay as long as they look different. Yeah, as I say, college has become a place where they want everyone to look different but think the same. You know, they want diversity of skin color but not diversity of ideas. Larry, I'm so glad you mentioned that. And I, I actually need to talk about this more, which is because of diversity quotas and affirmative action through the federal government, specifically through the student loan distributions, black kids that graduate high school for the first time in a couple generations that have a high likelihood on a trajectory to succeed, sometimes are lured into unrealistic financial conditions to go to these huge universities, not huge universities, let me say very expensive universities. They take tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt, and sometimes they drop out, not because they weren't necessarily qualified, but it might not have been the best option for them. Then they'll go back to where they, you know, back to the communities of which they grew up in, now they're saddled with $30,000 in student loan debt. You're not, making, you're not making people's lives better that way. And in fact, you're actually disadvantaging them where maybe a community college, maybe a technical school might have been a better option for that individual. And then it's the cycle of government dependence on top of it. I'm so glad you mentioned that because this is a government subsidized, low interest addiction program through government student loans. And so, Larry, I want you to get into this because so many of our listeners are getting they're getting kicked out of fraternities and sororities because they're posting my videos. I'm getting hundreds of emails of people that I've not seen it as bad right now, Larry. I have never had seen it so bad where discourse, dialogue, opposition ideas are just being completely obliterated. And I'm not just talking about by the media. I'm talking about by people that are running universities and kicking people out of universities because they dare share a Charlie Kirk video or they dare say something that's against the grain. Larry, why is it right now that the left is so militantly focused on pushing a narrative that is not rooted in truth? Well, they've been focused that way for a very long period of time. I call it the access of indoctrination, and that's Hollywood media academia. Uh, and they have been left wing for a long time. I think now it's, it's turbocharged because of Donald Trump. They hate his guts. Um, and um, I've never seen anything like it. And there are three things, in my opinion, that are going to cause Donald Trump to have difficulty coming into the fall. Again, they hate his guts with a purple passion. They've got plenty of money thanks to the Trump economy. And he will not have the element of surprise the way he did before. They underestimated his butt. That's why Hillary didn't set foot in, in Wisconsin. That's not going to happen again. It's going to be extremely difficult. And they're all angry. They feel, Charlie, that they should have tried harder. They should have done more, especially the media. Because remember when Trump first announced, they gave all sorts of free airtime millions of dollars of free airtime because they just knew he was a joke. They just knew no one was going to take him seriously. And then when he started picking off his rivals one by one, they realized they created a monster and they're angry. And academia is angry as well. And so all of these kids are being filled with even more invective than normal. But generally speaking, it's the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Black people have been messed over by by America. America has gotten wealthy by exploiting the Native Americans, uh, Mexican-Americans, uh, Asians, blacks, you name it. That's the mantra that young people have today, as opposed to the United States is the greatest force for good that the world has ever seen. I tell my friends who make the argument how bad the United States is, imagine Russia, imagine China, imagine Iran, fill in the, your favorite country, having the sole power 
1945 to 1949, as we did, the atomic bomb, the mightiest weapon humankind ever had, and we had sole possession of it for four years. What did we do with it? Nothing. What would Russia, the Soviet Union, have done if they had the mightiest weapon in uh, human history? What would the Chinese have done if they had the mightiest weapon in human history? We did nothing because that's how we are. We're not conquerors. We're not imperialists. But that's how a lot of young people feel, and that's what they're taught. So, Larry, can, you, can, we, can we talk about, I think there's a distinction between white privilege does not exist and it is racist, the idea of it. Also, understanding that we are not systemically racist. However, I think it's important to note that black people have been taken advantage of by Democrat leaders and Democrat policies. And so all three of those things can be independently true. And so I, I want to make sure for our listeners to be clear that while I reject the idea that you have a certain level of privilege just based on the color of your skin, that there have been a cycle of bad policies and doubled down and tripled down upon post Lyndon Baines Johnson. Can you break us down for this? Because, break this down because a lot of our listeners need to understand that you can reject white privilege and reject the notion that we are systemically racist while also pointing out that Democrats have actually abused the black community. Uh, there's no question that um, people are born with advantages and disadvantages. The biggest advantage all of us have when we were born is to be born on American soil. There's a reason that people are braving shark-infested waters off Cuba to get here because America uh, is the greatest place uh, that's ever been. Uh, you can go from nothing to something faster uh, than any other country in all of human history. That's the fact. It's also a fact that if you were raised with two parents, you have a huge advantage. A black, poor black kid with a mother and father in the house, Charlie, will have a better outcome in life than a middle class white kid raised by a single parent. So the second biggest advantage is to have a mom and a dad in the house, which used to be the common case with, with black people until the war on poverty. Uh, and Lyndon Johnson essentially incentivized women to marry the government and allowed men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. We went from 25% of kids being born outside of wedlock in 1965 to 70%, almost 75% now. It is the number one problem facing America. It's the number one problem facing black America. The, the fact that the welfare state has destroyed the black family in a way that even slavery didn't do. Charlie, during slavery, a black kid was more likely to be born under a roof with his biological mother and biological father, even though marriage was illegal, than today. And what they've done in order to level the playing field is to make things worse. The welfare states made things worse. Race-based preferences have made things worse. These kinds of, uh, of taxes of, of wealthy people have made things worse. My father, who was a janitor when I was growing up, Charlie, worked two full-time jobs as a janitor, cooked for a family on the weekend and make additional money. I went to night school a couple of nights a week to get his GED because he left home when he was in the, in the uh, eighth grade. My father always told me, quote, I never got a job from a poor person, close quote. Finally, a lot of unskilled people in the inner city have competition because of unskilled illegal immigration labor, labor competition that puts downward pressure on their, on their wages. So for all of these reasons, the black community is struggling more than it ought to struggle from 1940 to 1960. 1940, 87%, Charlie, of blacks were living below the federally defined level of poverty. 20 years later, that number was cut to 47. A 40-point decline in 20 years. It is the 20-year uh, period of economic pros prosperity for black people that's been the greatest in all of human history. Was there a, a welfare program? No. Was there set aside? No. Was there race-based preferences? No. Was there a war on poverty? No. It was just people getting up every day, working their butts off. Uh, Jason Riley has a book, uh, the writer for the Wall Street Journal. Stop helping us. Yeah. Stop helping us. Leave us alone. 
We're fine. Malcolm X said the same thing. He talked about white liberals and how they have their programs. He said at least white conservatives are honest. White liberals are talking about all the things they're going to do for you when, in fact, they make things worse. He said, if you leave us alone, we'll be fine. Leave us alone. Are you guys being crushed by the cartel of the colleges? Well, to get people with student loan debt out of student loan debt, that's why Credible is there. Credible is an online marketplace that gets you pre-qualified student loan refinancing rates from up to 10 different lenders. They help people get out of student loan debt. If you've got student loan debt, you could benefit. With a lower rate, you could save on interest or lower your monthly payment. And with a shorter loan term, you could get debt-free faster. You can consolidate all your student loans in one place. Incredible customers have given awesome reviews about how much better their lives have been after refinancing their student loans. You might not have student loan debt, but if your friend does, your son, your daughter, your grandson or granddaughter, you can go to Credible.com slash Charlie. That's C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash Charlie. On Credible, you see actual pre-qualified rates from up to 10 different lenders, whereas with some other marketplaces, other online marketplaces that won't be named, you'll get ranges of rates or ballpark estimates. It only takes a couple minutes to check rates, and checking rates does not impact your credit. They never sell your data, so you will not receive spam and phone calls from dozens of lenders. So please visit Credible.com slash Charlie. That's C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash C-H-A-R-L-I-E. When you refinance using that link, they'll give you $200. Credible.com slash Charlie. So, Larry, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm trying to think of the right word to describe this because it's not, it's not systemic racism. It might be, might be Democrat injustice or left-wing exploitation because I think what ends up happening is people see that black America is under the pressure of bad public policy, right? fatherlessness, the subsidy of it, marrying the government, not having two-parent households, withdrawing the police from the inner cities, public sector teacher unions dominating our schools, lack of educational opportunity, lack of literacy, lack of ability to do math at a grade level, all the things that you mentioned. And then immediately, the lazy, sloppy way of looking at that is someone says, well, they're, that's the black community, therefore they have what's happening to them because of racism. And what you're saying is that's not necessarily true, right? It, it, that's exactly right. And, and regarding schools, I mean, you're looking at, I, I went to Crenshaw High School. That's the high school that was featured in the movie Boys in the Hood. Right now, 3% of kids at my high school can do math at grade level. Now, what parent sends their kid to a school where only 3% of kids can do math at grade level if that parent has an option? The Democrat Party is telling you your kid is going to go there whether you like it or not. Republican Party wants to give that parent an option. Uh, the polls show that black and brown parents living in the inner city, the ma majority of them want vouchers. They want choice, uh, a chance to get their kid out of a underperforming government school. The majority of white Democrats do not. So here you are. You're in a party where the route to education, the route to the middle class is education. And here you are in a party uh, that is that is stopping you from the best possible route. And the Republicans are giving you the option and you're not pulling the lever for the Republican Party because you feel that they are, quote, racist, close quote. What is more important? Getting your kid an education or yelling and screaming at white people for being racist? What's more important? So, Larry, can you help us unpack another comment that I get a lot of? And we have record number of listeners. And I, I, we have an open email, uh, freedom at charliekirk.com. I love it because I get thousands of emails every couple of days from students that are telling me what they're being fed in the classrooms. And I, it's kind of a instant. It's actually probably more accurate polling than anything you could find on television. And one of the top things that I've been getting, Larry, is people say, well, 
the Republican Party used to be the Democrat Party and the party switched. Can, can you help unpack this, please? That, that's, a, that's a common refrain. And I address that in my movie, Uncle Tom. And by the way, the trailers can be seen at UncleTom.com. Here's the, uh, here's the argument. The argument is that sometime in the 60s, because of the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the racists in the Democratic Party were so incensed, they joined the Republican Party. Now, a couple of problems with this theory. The first is this. If you look at all the people, the Democrats that voted against the Civil Rights Act in 1964 in the Senate and in the House, all of them, one Democrat switched and joined Republican. His name was Strom Thurmond in the yeah. Senate and one House member. That's it. Out of all the people that voted against the Civil Rights Act in 1954, the Democrats, only two switched to the Republican Party. Secondly, think about it. You're a white racist in the Democratic Party, and you're unhappy that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 has been passed. And you join the party where a percentage of the, of the members voted more in favor of the act than the Democrats did? More Republicans, as a percentage, voted for the Civil Rights Act of 64 in the House and in the Senate than did Democrats. If I'm a Democrat, why would I leave a party and join the party where even higher percentage voted for uh, a law that I don't like and I consider it to be uh, one that is compromising my desire to segregate America? Why would I do that? It doesn't make any sense. The reason the South changed was over time because the left party became more left. It became the party of anti-war, the party of pro-union, uh, the party of abortion. And little by little, the South became more and more Republican and didn't become completely Republican, really, until the mid-90s. Now, why was there this big lag between the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the mid-90s? So it took 30 years? It is ridiculous. And the reason they say that is because they don't want to recognize the skanky history of the Democratic Party, a party that that unanimously opposed the 13th Amendment that freed the slaves, unanimously opposed the 14th Amendment that gave the newly freed slaves citizenship, and unanimously opposed the 15th Amendment that gave the slaves, at least on paper, the right to vote. And it was Democrats who founded the KKK. So for all these reasons, the Democrats never talk about the true history of the Democratic Party. And because the Democrats run government schools, kids are not learning about the true history of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, which was started to stop the, the spread of slavery and ultimately to end, the, end slavery. And of course, the first successful Republican candidate was a, a fellow named Abraham Lincoln. Which was founded as an anti-slavery party. And it's important to recognize and realize that as the South became considerably less racist, it became more Republican. If their theory was true, it would be the inverse. It would be, well, the, the South has become less racist, therefore it has become more Democrat. And Jimmy Carter to Bill Clinton, they pandered to Southern Democrat racist roots. And actually, if you go to the language of today of Joe Biden, of how he speaks to black people, it, it is incredibly racist. And I, I want to touch on that. But also, Larry, I think what you hit on, which is so important, which is that the Republican Party has always been a party about individual liberation, about the empowerment of the individual, the idea that you are made in the image of God, imago Dei. And you just hit a point here, Larry, that I'm going to actually focus on in future commentary, which is that there are other contributing reasons as to why the South also became more Republican outside of the race issue. The left became so coastally focused. They were focused on anti-war protests. They became very hostile to religion. Um, and so as the South starts became less and less, less, I don't want to use the word racist, but they became less racial, racially stereotypical, like just stereotyping and hostile towards individuals that weren't white. They started to realize that they were actually more Republican than Democrat. And so, Larry, here's another question I have in regards to kind of the history of the Democrat Party, which and I think we need to focus on this. It hasn't just been white liberals, though, right? There have been 
black Democrats that have gone along with this because I think it has served their power. Um, Barack Obama and Eric Holder and Jesse Jackson, Jesse Jackson, name a few, and Al Sharpton. Can you talk about that as well, about how there have been black leaders that have gone along with this narrative because it served their own uh, political interest? You know, I've always felt that Obama was schizophrenic on this, Charlie, because I don't believe that Obama in his heart of hearts believes that America uh, is a racist place and that racism remains a major problem in America. And the reason I don't believe that is because before he became president, he gave a speech at a historically black college. And he said, my generation, he referred to it as the Joshua generation, my generation has to get us that additional 10 percent. The MLK generation, the Moses generation, he said, got us 90% of the way there. And I thought that was pretty good. I thought America was around 90% of the way towards realizing MLK's vision. Fast forward, Obama becomes president. Racism is in America's DNA. The Cambridge police acted stupidly. If I had a son, he would look like Trayvon. And there's a place called Ferguson, he said to the United Nations, where we showing, the, showing us we have our own problems. He realized politically he needs to have blacks angry in order for him to get that monolithic vote to get him reelected. And so he pushes this stuff. Jesse Jackson pushes this stuff. Al Sharpton pushes this stuff. But do I believe that they believe it? Do I believe Maxine Waters honestly believes that racism is a major problem in America? No, I don't. Do I believe a lot of these people in the streets throwing bricks and yelling and screaming uh, do? Yes, because they're naive. They're being manipulated by these so-called leaders. One more thing about the South and about this notion that there was this big switch. If there was this big switch, riddle me this. Why was the first Republican senator since Reconstruction from Tennessee, Howard Baker, in favor of integration? <laughs> this is a pro-integration Republican who's the first Republican since construction, Reconstruction. He's in favor of integration. And you think that the Republican Party became the racist party of the South? Why would they then vote for somebody like Howard Baker, who's pro-integration? The whole thing is a complete lie. And that's their narrative because they want to smear the Republican Party and they want to uh, airbrush the, the, the past of the Democratic Party. When running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and more. And HR manager salaries are not cheap. They're an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small businesses. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding the terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance? Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash Kirk right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash Kirk. Spell BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash Kirk. And so can you focus even more, Larry, on what Lyndon Baines Johnson passed into law? Uh, our schools don't teach this. We got tens of thousands of young people. For the first time, they've heard about the Great Society program on this podcast. They might have heard it before. Can you talk about how this was one of the worst public policy decisions ever made, what it has done, what it's still doing to urban communities in particular? The intent of the policy, according to Lyndon Johnson's speech, it was to get black people more and more independent. So we're going to give you a helping hand to get you on your own two feet. That was the naive notion behind the so-called war on poverty. What happened, in fact, was in, in the mid-60s, Lyndon Johnson literally unleashed 
civil rights workers to knock on doors in the inner city to apprise women of the availability of welfare, provided there was no man in the house. So we've gone from 25% of black kids being born outside of wedlock in 1965 to almost 70% now. Speaking of which, in 1965, a Democrat named Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote a book called The Negro Family, A Case for National Action. Actually, it was a booklet, a pamphlet. And he said, 25% of black kids are born outside of wedlock. This is horrific. It's going to lead to more crime. It's going to lead to more dropouts. Uh, we need to do something about this. Well, now it's almost triple that, and the percentage of white kids who are born outside of wedlock, Charlie, is around 25%. The welfare state has not just incentivized black women to marry the government, it's incentivized women to marry the government. Now there are 50% of Hispanic kids raised without fathers, 25% of white kids, 70% of black kids. I think the only mm. percentage that's higher are Native Americans on, on reservations, which is almost 85%. So... All of this stuff has done nothing at all but to create greater dependency uh, and, and uh, generations of welfare recipients. One of the reasons we know that even people who are poor know that they're being gamed is because in the mid-80s, the LA Times asked poor people whether or not welfare was a stepping stone to get you free or a crutch. More said a crutch than a stepping stone to get you free. And these are poor people for crying out loud. They're telling you it's a narcotic and it's making us dependent. So, so, Larry, I have to give you a compliment. What you just said there proves my thesis that it was not systemic racism, that it affected all communities, that fatherlessness went up in the black community, the white community, every community through this public policy um, push. It disproportionately impacted the black community because it just so happens at the time the black community was very urban populated. I, I think that's a that's a poor way of describing it. Right. Well, no, I think it's fair to say when you're talking at the 25 percent or so uh, percentage of kids outside of well, I, I think it's fair to say you have some sort of historical uh, reason for that. But from 25 percent to 70 percent, you cannot blame that on slavery and on Jim Crow. That's modern welfare policies. Yes. No, I, I think that's very fair. And in fact, when you when you don't have fathers in the home, everything from that point forward becomes more difficult. Um, to keeping the family together, to preventing individuals from finding a father figure elsewhere. And this is part of one of the big lies of the left. And you actually go deeper and deeper, Larry. And I didn't believe this for many years until I actually started to read the literature of the postmodernists. They actually don't believe fathers are necessary. A lot of the left, they won't even recognize what we believe that we should have more fathers in the home. In fact, that's not even a point of agreement. Well, I got a I got an email the other day from somebody who was angry because I talked about the importance of fathers. And he said, Larry, you don't have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, uh, I was raised uh, without my father and so forth. I, I said, I never said it was a death sentence. Again, my father left home when he was 13 years old. He never met his biological father. You're talking about a black boy, Athens, Georgia, at the beginning of the Great Depression. I defy you to find somebody whose hand was dealt that, that bad. And my father just said, you have a moral obligation to pick up your cards and play them to the best of your ability. He joined the Marines. Uh, he became a janitor, uh, cleaned toilets, two full-time jobs cleaning toilets, uh, and then ultimately he saved his nickels and dimes, started a little cafe, and ran that until his mid-80s. That is America. Uh, the most prominent think tank on the left is the Brookings Institution. Mm -hmm. And they agree with the American Enterprise Institute, which is a prominent think tank on the right. And all three of them said the same thing. In order to escape poverty, do three things. Finish high school. Don't have a kid before you're 20. Get married before you have a kid. They might have phrased it somewhat differently. But those three principles were, were articulated both by the think tanks on the left and on the right. So at least the Brookings Institution has, not, has acknowledged the, the centrality of having a father in the house for kids to be, to be better educated. And they said if you don't have a father in the house, you're going to have greater um, a teen pregnancy. 
uh, greater welfare dependency, all the kind of stuff you and I were talking about, except it wasn't from the right. It was from the Brookings Institution. Look it up. Well, and and people say to me quite often, they say, well, you are just protecting a tyrannical patriarchy. And, and, I, and I ask, and sometimes the people that are saying this are women in very high positions. And I say, boy, what a incredible tyrannical patriarchy where you could become a journalist at one of the top institutions in the country. I mean, I mean, using a term like tyrannical patriarchy as your, as your go-to argument. And it's kind of funny, Larry, because when you deal with people that say that, they actually become kind of boring to discuss because everything then comes back to blaming the world on either institutional and systemic racism or tyrannical patriarchy. It's just, it kind of becomes useless to be able to dialogue with them. And we, we have a much more multivariate analysis to actually point at specific issues that might be plaguing society. So Larry, concretely, let's look at some policies. A lot of people say, well, Charlie, what can we possibly advocate for? Things are awful. And I, I, I talk about school choice for black kids. I talk about actually having more police officers in these communities, not less police officers, rebuilding the black family. Larry, if you were, and, and maybe I, I would recommend that you were, and maybe as things you know grow, um, we can get you there. If you were in charge of policy for the White House for Black America, what would you advocate for if you were given the bully pulpit? What would you introduce? What would you say, Mr. President, you have to do this now? I would say in 20 years, welfare is over. Uh, we're going to give 20 years for the people who are on, the, on welfare because we created independency, we created dependency uh, and the inability of people right now to be self-sufficient. So it's going to take some time for them to wean themselves off of welfare. But in 20 years time, federal government is going to get out of the business of welfare. The founding fathers never intended for the federal government to be in that business. We ought not be in that business. What's going to happen to poor people uh, if there's no government welfare? Well, the good news is there are a lot of conservatives. Conservatives are far more generous of their time and of their money than are, than are liberals. There's a book called Who Really Cares by Arthur Brooks, who determined that conservatives give way more time, way more money than do liberals. Uh, so the idea that if poor people are no longer assisted by government, we're going to let them die on the streets is BS. That's not how we roll. The only question is how to, to, to care for the for people who are needy, not whether to care for them. And we've got plenty of ways of doing that. And any and for every dollar the government spends on welfare programs, around 70 cents is consumed in transfer costs. When you look at organizations like United Way, Red Cross, and you donate a dollar, 85 cents, 90 cents gets on gets down to the intended beneficiary. I, I was a volunteer for United Way one summer, and I was amazed at how much more efficient they are than, than the federal government. If, if organizations like that had the welfare money, it would go further, and it would be spent on people in the community because the people living in the community know the ones who need the help and know how to help far better than some bureaucrat sitting in Washington, D.C. can. Larry, I love that. I want to address something that I hear a lot when I go to college campuses from liberals and from black activists. And it kind of comes back to this idea of fighting the man and fighting the system. And I, I actually hadn't heard this until the last couple of years, and it's been growing with a lot of momentum. It's the idea that our government put crack cocaine in the streets in the 70s and 80s as a attempted um, policy position to destabilize the black family. I'm sure you've heard this before. Can, 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 yeah, can you comment on this? Because I, I actually could use some more, um, let's just say, intellectual ammunition to be able to counter this. It, it was basically started by a guy named Gary Webb, who wrote for a newspaper uh, called The Mercury Sun. Uh, and there was even a movie uh, made about this starring um, Robert Downey Jr. It made him a hero because he was the one who investigated this business about the CIA working with the groups that were putting drugs in the inner city. What he never said 
was that the CIA started it, but that's kind of how people interpreted what he said. That notion that but for the CIA and the Contras, uh, there wouldn't be a crack epidemic in the, in the inner city was debunked by the Los Angeles Times, by the New York Times, and by the Washington Post. And when I mentioned that the other day, somebody called up and said, okay, Larry, here you are discrediting all these newspapers. And then when you get in trouble and you want them as a source, you point to them. Which is it? I said, you don't get it. You don't get the media. They hate, hate, hate Ronald Reagan. They hated him. The LA Times couldn't stand him. The New York Times couldn't stand him. The Washington Post couldn't stand him. If they had a story that Ronald Reagan essentially started the drug trade in the inner city, you don't think they'd be shouting that from the rooftops? It would, it would be in their best interest to do that. The fact is, right. the, the, the facts are not there, and you had these three major papers who hate Ronald, Ronald Reagan's gut saying, I'm sorry, it's not true. It is true that the Contras were selling drugs in the inner city. It is true that the CIA was aware of that. But that's a far cry from saying the CIA hired them, told them to put it in, and that the, tra the trade only started because of that. It was already going on. Uh, the, the Contras were a minor player, and it is true the CIA looked the other way because they thought it was a higher, uh, higher mission, but it wasn't true that the CIA allowed drugs to be in the inner city. But for this relationship, the drug, the drug trade wouldn't have occurred. That's what people think, and it simply is not true. The former uh, CIA head also came to L.A., had a town hall. Uh, his name was Deutsch, I believe his last name, and took every single question from listeners who, who uh, from uh, participants who, who made that accusation. Uh, and he stood tall. And it is simply not true. Thank you, Larry. Let's, 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 assume, let's assume it were true. Let's assume that the government essentially put drugs in the inner city. Who told people to take them? I, my mother said, you could put a, 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 a kilo on my porch every morning. I'm not taking drugs. So even if the government did that, which they didn't, why is it not your responsibility to abstain? And as if the entire argument of personal responsibility has disappeared. So additionally, Larry, there's a lot of myths around black sentencing, that black people get unfair prison sentences and they're mistreated by the criminal justice system. Can you help us unpack this? Well, regarding the long the, the sentences, uh, Eric Holder made that argument in a speech where he talked about pernicious racism. And by the way, he gave three examples, one of which was the longer sentences that, that black criminal defendants get. And it's true. A black criminal defendant uh, who commits crime A compared to a white criminal defendant who commits crime A will get a longer sentence. The reason is because the black criminal typically has a longer a criminal record than the white criminal. And judges, when it comes to sentencing, will look at your, look at your conviction record. And, and, and if you have a longer one, that will be taken into consideration. The U.S. Sentencing Commission said regarding this, uh, this gap in, uh, in time served, said the gap is there because of, quote, legitimate reasons, end of quote. When Eric Holder bitched about the gap, he did not talk about the Sentencing Commission saying that the, that the gap is attributable to legitimate reasons. Uh, regarding the uh, criminal justice system in, in general, you know, the, the, uh, the government for years, Charlie, has been taking something called the Police Public Contact Survey, where they interview every two years over 60,000 Americans. Did you have a contact with the police last year? If the answer is yes, how was that contact? How were you spoken to? How were you treated? Were you treated physically? They can't find any data whatsoever to support the idea that deadly force is used disproportionately against black people. It's just not there, and this police public contact survey has been done for a number of years. Let me give you one more example. The city of Rialto in California, where I am, is about 100,000 people. It is racially diverse. A few years ago, the police department decided to give the officers body cams. The officers didn't want them, but they made them take them, 
And they gave them all to officers, and sometimes they activated them, and sometimes they didn't. So the officers never knew which body camera was operating, and the civilians never knew. But they did know there was a program. What happened? Police complaints, complaints against the police, Charlie, fell 90% after these cameras were installed. Police uh, use of force against uh, suspects fell 50%. Not because the police were behaving any differently. Their training was the same. It turns out the civilians were behaving differently. Once they realized they were being taped, they stopped lying on officers. They stopped filing false complaints. And they stopped challenging them because they knew it was being recorded. So it turns out a lot of people are flat out lying on the cops the same way Dorian Johnson did. A Michael Brown's friend who said that Michael Brown said, hands up, don't shoot. That was a lie. And it turns out a lot of people are lying on the cops because when both sides had to be honest, the police didn't change their behavior, but civilians certainly did, at least in Rialto. It's, inc it's incredible. So another, I want to just kind of get as broad as we can get here, Larry. Four out of 10 of Americans when polled, young Americans, say that we do not have a history we should be proud of. Uh, the 1619 Project, the New York Times, 400 years, they say that was the true founding of America. The way I word it, Larry, is that the founding fathers put a moonshot goal of human equality inspired by the Bible, articulated in the Magna Carta, written by John Locke, and they put this huge goal. They did not achieve that goal from the moment of the founding. But you know what's amazing? The preamble of the Constitution has never been changed. That was the North Star that we were always pointing towards. And we got closer and closer, and it took some bloodshed. It took some protesting. It took some discussion. It took almost an entire separating of the nation. But despite that, we never had to change that North Star. And that, I think that's really significant. And so instead of indicting the entire country as being inherently totally racist from the beginning, despite Vermont, a year after the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1777, abolishing slavery, which was a huge deal because slavery was the 2,000-year, 3,000, 5,000-year norm, can you please talk about how the United States of America is a country we should be proud of, not one that we should be ashamed of. Because I think at a very root level, that's where a lot of this unrest comes from. There is a Harvard sociologist named Orlando Patterson. He's a Democrat. He voted twice for Obama. He said America is the least racist majority white society uh, in all of the world, provides more opportunities uh, and more opportunities for advancement than any country in the world, including all of those in Africa. When Barack Obama got elected, I'm old school, Charlie. I had the New York Times and the LA Times thrown to my house. That morning, I pick it up, and there are color pictures on the front pages of both newspapers of black parents crying, holding their kids, saying, now for the first time, I can really truly say and believe you can be all that you can be. And I looked at that, and I said, wow. My mom told me when I was seven years old, I could be president if I wanted to. And I believed her then. I believe her now. What would you have said to your kids had Obama lost? Anyway, he won. They said, this is it. We've now reached the point where I can really tell my kid I can be it. And fast forward, we're talking about reparations. What happened to that? Why, why aren't the same people complaining about institutional racism? Why weren't they doing that when Obama was in charge? Look at Baltimore, where Freddie Ray was killed in 2015. Uh, the mayor, black, the number one of the running the police department, black, the number two department, black, all of city council, Democrat, majority, black, the state attorney who brought the charges against the, the six officers, black, three of the six officers, black, the judge before whom two of the officers decided to try their case and the judge found them not guilty, black, 
the United States Attorney General at the time, black, and the President of the United States was black. So you have all of these black people running the institution, and you're talking about institutional racism? As Wanda Sykes, the comedian, said when Obama got elected, how are you going to complain about the man when you are the man? So knock it off. Work hard, get an education, graduate from high school, don't make bad moral mistakes, don't have a kid before you get married, have that kid and get a job, keep a job, don't quit the job until you get another job. You will not be poor, no matter your race. It's, it's very well said. And so, Larry, I'm watching imagery right now as I have cable news on mute of white people that are kneeling and apologizing for being white and Black Lives Matter individuals that are coming up and ask them to do it. You touched on this earlier. Can you just expound on this, please? Because this is happening in real time. I'm going to tell you right now, if any one of these mobs come up to me, I'm not kneeling for anything except Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the only thing I'm kneeling for. You know, the, the mayor of L.A., Eric Garcetti, just said he wants to put together mental health care for young black men to get over uh, the stigma of people fearing you. So according to Eric, uh, Eric Garcetti, young black people have in their heads psychological damage because white people are looking at them uh, with wary eyes. I think we ought to have mental health for young white liberals to get over their guilt of slavery and Jim Crow. That's where I think we ought to put our mental health dollars, because this is a sickness. The idea that black people can't make it in the world and that I need you to kneel in order to and renounce your white privilege for me to get ahead. Uh, that's just that's just absurd. It's a soft bigotry of low expectations. It's insulting. Uh, And what you're really saying is that black people really are incapable of of making it on their own. I I know a guy in Cleveland where he used to live. He's a prominent Democrat politician. We're on a plane and we had a couple of drinks. He had more than I did. We started talking about affirmative action. And I said, Charlie, I've always felt that not so very deep down inside, most Democrats feel that black people at the playing field level really can't compete. And he said, a lot of us feel that way. I know a lot of us really do. I don't think he probably would have answered that way had he been sober, but I think that was one of those moments where he was really telling the truth. And a lot of liberals, I, feel, I, I truly believe, believe that blacks really can't complete. It's what George W. Bush called the soft bigotry of low expectations. And, and Clarence Thomas has been, and I, I love Clarence Thomas. I think he's an American hero. And you look at someone who should be on every single side of every black school, black predominant school, there should be a picture of Clarence Thomas and say, if he can do it, so can you. I just love the story of Clarence Thomas. And the story of your father is not dissimilar. I mean, they both grew up in the antebellum South. They both grew up in a time where there was a lot more bitter racism in America. And Clarence Thomas actually grew up in a time in America where, um, if I'm not, if I'm remembering his biography correctly, he had to work extra hours just to be able to read because he didn't have the resources even to have the schooling to read. And now he's a Supreme Court justice. And just because he's a conservative, they try to, the white liberals try to whitewash history as if he does not exist. In fact, they tried to derail his, his testimony, which, which he correctly punched back against the mob. I want to talk to you about that, Larry. How, and, and I, thank you for being so generous with your time. Your insights are phenomenal. I'm taking pages of notes, by the way, just so you know, pages. Um, how are we supposed to deal with the mob? Because so many of our listeners now are being assailed by this very mob. Let me just say a quick word about Clarence Thomas. There is a magazine, probably the most prestigious, long uh, published magazine in the black community called Ebony. And every year they used to have something called the 100 Most Influential Black Americans. They stopped calling it that, Charlie, because they became too many influential black Americans. Now they call it the 100 plus most influential black Americans. They have it in every year. Every year, guess who's not in there? Clarence Thomas. Now, how can you say 
you're doing a list of the most influential black Americans and not have the only black member of the Supreme Court on the list. You know who else is never in there? Thomas you. Sowell. Thomas Sowell. 40 books. Uh, David Mamet called him America's most important contemporary philosopher. Walter Williams, the only black person I know of who is the chair of a non-black black college. He was the, uh, the economics chair of, of the uh, economic department's chair of, of George Mason University. I've uh, written a number of books. He's not in there. Clarence Thomas, Walter Williams, um, uh, Thomas Sowell, three of the most important thinkers in this country, not in the 100 plus most influential black Americans list of Ebony Magazine. So a lot of young people don't even know who the hell they are. And that's one of the reasons I made this documentary, Uncle Tom, where I have an, a, a segment in there on Walter Williams and on Thomas Sowell and on how many black people don't even know who they are. And, and what's the URL again, Larry? Just so UncleTom.com. I encourage everyone, I don't know if they can financially support the film or whatever the vehicle is, please do it. Because Larry, what you're saying here is so factual. It's so needed. It's refreshing. And it's just, it's good to hear someone that is so informed on the issues and more people should know about you too. I mean, I can't tell you how many emails I get where they said, Charlie, I was hypnotized into liberalism. And then all of a sudden I found your videos and Candace Owens videos and Larry Elder's interview. And I never knew anyone could think that way. And I just think it's immoral that people are not exposed to both sides of the issue, let alone the correct side of the issue. Um, and they're just so immersed in this. And so it's just horrible. So, so Larry, can you talk about some right, right to this day? Joe Biden is probably going to be the Democrat nominee. He said that, and I'm quoting, um, if you vote for Trump, then you ain't black. I, I'm, I might not have the words specific, but that's the essence of it. What, what, what's your take on this? Well, I, I was, it was interesting to me, the reaction to what he said, because he got pounded even by liberals. And he then apologized, said he was being a wise guy because the, because the guy he was talking to was being a wise guy. In fact, Charlie, all Joe Biden did was articulate a standard position of the Democrat Party. If you are not a uh, if you are a black person and you don't believe that racism is a major problem, you don't believe that the problems facing the black community can be attributable to race and racism, you don't believe in reparations, then you are a sellout. You're not really black. Ayanna Presley said it last year. She was at a Netroots conference. And she I remember said, that. We don't need any more brown faces who don't want to be a brown voice. We don't need any more black faces who don't want to be a black voice. How is that any different than Joe Biden saying, if you don't support me, you ain't black enough? It's the same thing. Out here in uh, California, a black man named Ward Connolly, about 25 years ago, led the fight to get rid of race and base preferences. It was called Proposition 209, to get rid of the use of, uh, of gender and race in hiring, contracting, and college admissions. He led the fight, a black man who ran a business. He's married to a white woman. One of his political opponents is a woman named Diane Watson, later on ran for and got elected to U.S. House of Representatives. She said publicly, let me tell you why you, why you want to get rid of affirmative action. You're married to a white woman. You want to be white. You have no ethnic pride. You don't want to be black. And when the newspapers later on said, did you say that? She said, that's right, I said it, and I don't take it back. And never did. Ran for Congress, got elected, served several terms by saying something that even David Duke these days probably couldn't get away with. This is how that party is. And, and Joe Biden said it. You're telling me Joe Biden never heard black people say that to him privately? Many of his campaign aides are black. You don't think somebody said to him, if so-and-so doesn't vote, that person's not really black. Of course Joe heard that all his life. He just said it publicly. He got hammered. It was nothing more than articulating a standard position of the Democratic Party. You don't hold these views. You're not really black. Uh, Gloria Steinem, 
The top feminists in the country refer to Kay Bailey Hutchinson, the Republican senator from Texas, as a female impersonator. So you're no longer even a woman if you're a Republican and you're, and you're pro-life. So that's how that party rolls. Joe Biden just articulated the standard position, and all of a sudden, oh my God, Joe Biden said something demeaning. No, he didn't. He simply articulated a standard position of the Democratic Party. Well, Democrats think they own black people because they used to own black people. I mean, this is a direct philosophical lineage of previously being plantation owners and previously being the, the, the party of slavery. So, Larry, the, uh, the, the film, again, the URL is UncleTom.com. Is that right? That's or, right, UncleTom.com. Um, and you see, yeah, the t-shirt, I, you see the T-shirt I'm wearing, Uncle Tom. I, I encourage, I love it. Be the first in your hood to get an Uncle Tom T-shirt uh, and, wear it, and wear it in your neighborhood. So I want to close this conversation, Larry, with do you see Donald Trump making real gains in the black community? Because it seemed like he was at some point. It seems like there was momentum. And then it seems as if I, I don't know what to make of what's happening recently. I don't know if it's if it's going to have any uh, real impact politically. A lot of our listeners are holding out hope that black America will defect from the Joe Biden intellectual dominance of the Democrat Party. What are you seeing and hearing? What I'm hearing is twice the number of blacks who voted for President Trump are now supporting him, uh, in large part because of the economy. And remember, this is the guy who pardoned Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight fighter. Uh, he did the First Step Act that allowed uh, about a thousand uh, black men to have their prison sentences shortage by, shortened by an average of 70 uh, months. This is the guy who's doing something about illegal immigration. I told you about the pressure that yeah. unskilled illegals put for jobs and, and downward pressure on wages. Um, and he uh, uh, increased funding for historically black colleges. He increased funding for so-called enterprise zones. So, so for somebody who's a racist, President Trump needs to go back to racism school because he's not doing a very good job. <laughs> um, any other closing thoughts, Larry, things you want to mention, projects you're working on, ways that our listeners can support you? Just uh, be sure and check out my movie. It comes out on the 19th. It's going to be an online release, UncleTom.com. Uh, and I really think it's going to be a game changer. And after you see it, if you like it, please, please, please tell your friends, tell your neighbors, get this thing going. I want this thing to be a really big word of mouth thing. I don't want just uh, conservatives to see it. I want liberals to see it because I think once you see this film, Charlie, you're going to go, you know what? Maybe just maybe I need to rethink a few things. Yeah, I love that. So I encourage everyone because I know people are under attack. And if you're under attack by your families, your friends, your neighbors on the 19th, go to UncleTom.com and, and just say, hey, these black scholars and these black intellectuals and these black leaders, they have something to say that you disagree with. Why? And, and I think I can't tell you, Larry, and it pains me how few white suburban college educated liberals even know that we have a black person on the Supreme Court who's a conservative. I, I kid you not. It's as if the media has done an intentional, without a pun intended, blackout to not even show his face or his name unless he's under accusations. That's the only time that Clarence Thomas can ever get headlines. Can I leave you with a, one story, if you don't mind? I, I was living and working in Cleveland for a number of years. And I joined, uh, when I became a, uh, the president of my own company, I joined a, a downtown club called the Cleveland Athletic Club. And it's exclusive. You had to apply to, to join. Uh, I was the second or third black member. Almost all the staff there working there is black. I like to play pool. Although I'm not a very good pool player, but there's a black guy in the pool area who used to teach me how to play. And he's about my, my dad's age. Always called me Mr. Elder, which is always kind of awkward because he's older than I am. But that's how this place is. So Jesse Jackson running for president. It's 1984, 1988. I forget which one, uh, the, the, which one, but it's one or the other. And we're walking out of the building together. He turns to me and he says, 
Mr. Elder, what do you think of the chances of our Jesse Jackson becoming president of the United States? Our Jesse Jackson. So that told me how he felt about Jesse Jackson. So I said to myself, wow, how am I going to answer this? I don't want to lie and say I'm going to support some left-wing crazy guy. I don't want to offend this guy either. So I said, well, Charlie, I don't think he's qualified. And he said, me neither, Mr. Elder. He's in the we shall overcome business. And you know what? We done overcome. That, that story is very powerful. And I'll tell you, Larry, your, your message needs to be heard by millions of black youth because there isn't, there's a lot of opportunity for this country for people. And the perpetual activist protesting industry will not give you meaning. Burning down the world will not give you meaning. Oh, throwing a Molotov cocktail at a cop or a police officer might give you a power trip for 30 seconds. But real meaning comes from responsibility. It comes from restraining yourself from your, in, your impulses and your indulgences and doing something worthwhile and building a life that you can be proud of. And I think your message is really around that personal responsibility and making good choices and being proud of our country. Charlie, I wrote a book about my relationship with my father. Uh, we did not speak to each other for almost 10 years. When I was 25 years old, we sat down and had a conversation I thought was going to last for five minutes. It lasted eight hours. And the book is all about this eight-hour conversation. And during that time, this man went from being this guy that yelled at us all the time when we were kids to this amazing human being who is, as I said, an American success story. It's called Dear Father, Dear Son, Two Lives, Eight Hours. And I urge people to check that out, too. The paperback, by the way, is called A Lot Like Me. It's a different title, but it's the same book. Please go buy the book, everybody, and UncleTom.com. And also, the Sage of South Central LA, I think I got that right. You have a radio show, radio program for three hours a day. I do, and i also very active on Instagram, very active on Twitter. My handle is at Larry Elder. Be sure and check out everything. I'm also active on, on YouTube. I've got a couple of YouTube channels. One is called Larry Elder Show for Epic Times, E-P-O-C-H. And the other one is the Larry Elder, Radio, the Larry Elder Show Radio, two different channels. Incredible. Well, thank you, Larry. God bless you, my friend. You're an important voice, and I know we all learned a lot. So thank you so much. Thank you for giving me so much time. I appreciate it. What an incredible conversation with Larry Elder. Thank you guys so much for listening. Email me questions, freedom at charliekirk.com. And the first 20 people that can prove that you guys are subscribed, give a five-star rating and leave a review. 20 people right here, right now, will get a signed copy of the New York Times bestseller, MAGA Doctrine. Just email me, freedom at charliekirk.com, to show me you are subscribed and leaving those reviews and five-star ratings. God bless you and God bless America. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary.